All right, good morning, Journey. If you, uh, if you came here this morning expecting to hear President Obama speak, I'm sorry, that's Wednesday at the commencement ceremony. But if you did come here to hear about hope and a change we can believe in, you absolutely came to the right place. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. A couple weeks ago, I was scrolling through my Facebook news feed, as I often do, and I saw an old friend of mine uh, post this. She said, Heaven gained an angel yesterday. Rest in peace, Grandma. Love and miss you always. It's kind of sad, kind of sweet. Um, Heaven gained an angel yesterday. It kind of reminded me of something I heard a while back. I don't know how many of you remember this, but in the aftermath of 9-11, there was a a whole uh, surge of spiritual interest as people struggled to make sense out of what had happened and, and to cope with it. And a couple weeks after September 11th, there was a big event at Yankee Stadium called Prayer for America. Thousands and thousands of people gathered together, kind of a memorial service for those who had lost their lives on 9-11. And it had spiritual overtones. It was called Prayer for America. And this event was presided over by uh, perhaps the unofficial chaplain of the American public, Oprah. (laughs) Oprah presided over prayer for America. So that says a lot, I think, about the spiritual condition of the the American public. But she said this in her remarks at the Prayer for America event. She said, I believe that when you lose a loved one, you gain an angel whose name you know. Over 6,000 and counting angels have been added to the spiritual roster these past two weeks. Don't know where she got the number 6,000, but that's not the the detail in what she said that I want to focus on. I just want to make three quick observations about Oprah's remarks. One is that they seem to be an attempt to bring comfort uh, in the face of what was a just tremendously painful event. 9-11 was truly awful. People were hurting and suffering and grieving in really profound ways. There's something about what she said that, you know, kind of eases the blow a little bit. You know, if all those who were killed are now angels, then well, perhaps it's just a little less awful. Another observation is that Oprah implies that when we die, we become something else, perhaps uh, attaining a new, a new, higher, more spiritual state of being. You know, we're human now, but after we die, we become angels. The third observation is that Oprah makes uh, no distinction between people based on how they lived or what, their, who, what kind of person they were, what their lives were like, but it seems like no matter what, we all kind of end up the same. So I'll, I'll refer back to some of these ideas as we go. Uh, first off, just this idea of, of kind of bringing comfort in the face of, of tragedy, in the face of pain and suffering, that's understandable. I mean, death is is very, very painful. 9-11 was a horrifically painful event, but death of any kind is tremendously and profoundly painful, as many of us know all too well from the past year. And death is also tremendously scary. It's a a scary prospect to think about. Um, It makes sense to try to think of, um, you know, something comforting in the face of it. And humans have devised all sorts of ideas about an afterlife, about uh, something on the other side of the pain and and fear of death, that there's something else out there. There's all kinds of ideas throughout all time and all cultures about an afterlife. And even in our uh, supposedly secular day and age, you ask the average person on the street, the overwhelming majority of people in our country believe that there is some kind of life beyond this one. The question is, though, what's actually true 
versus what's just wishful thinking to make ourselves feel better? Is there any basis for a confidence in a real life after death that has some basis to it, that has some, some, some proof, perhaps? I mean, Oprah's idea sounds great. We all become angels, and that sounds awesome, but I'm not sure that has any real basis or evidence in reality for being true. Is there any way to be confident that our hope in a life after death is real? Well, now we're winding down what's been a long and profound sermon series on the Apostles' Creed called What We Believe. Um, Well, that's not the slide that's up there, but the sermon series is called What We Believe. We're kind of going through the Apostles' Creed, the core teachings of Jesus' apostles as they they, uh, spread the Christian faith. We've covered all kinds of profound things. I'll refer back to several of them as we go today, but we're about to to land this series with the last two. The creed ends with, I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. So today is really just kind of part one of two as we close out this series. Next week, Pastor Tom will fill out more of what life everlasting means and what it looks like. So, you know, if I leave you with any unanswered questions, he'll take care of them next week. Um, But I'm going to zero in on this first phrase, the resurrection of the body. Now, life everlasting, I think, you know, most people would agree, yeah, that's what Christians believe. Uh, yeah, most Christians would say, I believe there's life after death. Well, perhaps I'll go to heaven. Uh, and you ask the average non-Christian about what Christians believe, and I think most of them would agree, yeah, Christians believe there's some kind of afterlife and they go to heaven or something like that. Um, but beyond that, what does that actually look like? What is, what is heaven? What is life everlasting? Like, the details uh, of what that actually means, I think, are pretty vague and pretty fuzzy in a lot of people's minds. I think the average non-Christian really doesn't know a whole lot about the Christian belief in what an afterlife actually looks like in, in, de- in any kind of detail. And increasingly, I think uh, a number of Christians are, are confused and vague and muddled on what exactly does life everlasting mean? What does it look like? Uh, a lot of times I hear Christians say things, or I've been to funerals and churches where what gets said sounds a little bit more like Oprah than, about, than like what the Bible teaches. But the apostles were not vague or fuzzy at all in what they believed eternal life would look like. They had a very clear hope that they told people about, so clear that this phrase, resurrection of the body, is in the creed as a kind of a core truth to the Christian faith. Not just any kind of life everlasting that looks like whatever, but resurrection of the body is key. So we'll, we'll try to get some clarity today. I probably won't answer all of your questions, but we'll try to get some clarity today on what Scripture actually teaches. So if you are able to follow along in your, in your handout, that's our, our first header there. Just trying to get some clarity on what Scripture actually teaches. So one, Scripture clearly and consistently affirms Resurrection, the idea of resurrection, of us rising up from the grave, rising back to life. This is all throughout Scripture. This was foretold in the Old Testament in a number of ways. There's, there's places in the Old Testament where resurrection is clearly stated and a number of other ways in which it's indirectly implied and assumed. In particular, in the Psalms and in many of the major prophets, resurrection is, is a, a pretty clear teaching of the Old Testament. I'll share one example with you. This is from Daniel, the prophet Daniel, chapter 12, where he says this, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. 
In Daniel, this is a very clear and concise summary of, the, of what a biblical view of resurrection looks like. Many will rise again, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. The Old Testament affirms resurrection. Jesus affirmed resurrection. Uh, most Jews in his day, because of the Old Testament, believed in some kind of resurrection, but some didn't. And when they challenged Jesus on the point, he said to them, look, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. He affirmed that the scriptures, in fact, taught about resurrection. It's important that Jesus affirmed that that's what the Old Testament taught, about resurrection, and he taught it himself. So another example uh, from the book of John, Jesus says this, A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, meaning God's voice, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So Jesus affirmed the resurrection teaching that was in the Old Testament. And then the apostles, the teachings of Paul and John and Peter and the other apostles in the New Testament, they proclaimed resurrection as a core part of what the Christian hope is. They proclaimed this to their Jewish compadres and and said, you know, your belief, your hope in the resurrection has been fulfilled in Jesus. It's found in Jesus, the first to be firstborn from among the dead. And then they took this belief into the Greek and Roman world, which had all sorts of vague and fuzzy notions of an afterlife, much like our culture does today. The apostles proclaimed a clear hope in a bodily resurrection. So scripture is clear and consistent in affirming resurrection. Now, uh, one question might be, well then, who does this apply to? Who gets raised? The answer is everyone. So everyone, if you looked at what we just saw in Daniel and, and Jesus' words, everyone gets called back to life. So back to Oprah, you know, perhaps we all, we all do have something in common in our life after death. We all get raised. But where we go from there is not all the same. Where we go from there is not all the same. Daniel says some will rise to life Others will rise to be condemned. It's a sobering truth. You know, resurrection is a, is a pretty sobering reality. You know, God's going to raise everybody. And at the sound of his voice, all will rise. We won't just kind of rise in various ways by various different powers. God's going to be the one to call us all out of the grave. And that is a message of accountability, of God's authority over our lives, and, and kind of holding us accountable for the lives that we lived. It's a sobering reality. It it implies judgment. It implies accountability. Even if you spend your whole life running from God, he will come raise you up and call you to account. The book of Revelation talks about the sea giving up its dead. Even if you've been dead thousands of years and your body was at the bottom of the sea, God will come find you and call you to account. It's a sobering truth. The good news is, I'd like to refer you back to last week, we talked about another key Christian belief, which is the forgiveness of sins. So, if you've been running from God your whole life to this point, you can stop running today and be at peace with him today. And he would be more than happy to receive you and to forgive your sins. We talked last week about how it's in God's nature to forgive sins. He delights in forgiving sins. He doesn't take delight in punishment. He delights to forgive sins. So, we can stop running at any point, but... You know, eventually we're all going to be called to account, and resurrection is a, is a sobering reality if we've not made peace with God. But if we have made peace with God, if we have had our sins forgiven, and for the Christian, 
Resurrection is an incredibly wonderful reality that's coming. It's wonderful news to be called out of the grave and be resurrected. Which leads to my third point here. The Christian hope involves a bodily existence. The Christian hope for everlasting life involves a bodily existence, a bodily resurrection. We don't become angels. We never stop being human. We'll be human for eternity. And to be human really means a bodily existence. There's a popular saying that, you know, we're really, we're just spiritual beings having a human experience. Um, And no, that's not from the Bible. That's kind of a new age teaching that sort of elevates the the spiritual above the physical and says, you know, our true essence is is really spiritual, has nothing to do with the body. The body is something to escape from or to to look down upon, to discard. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible holds a very high view of the body, and to be human is to have a bodily existence. When the Bible describes the creation of human beings, most of the details describe the creation of their bodies. There were no Adam and Eve kind of living some other kind of existence and then God sort of crammed them into a body or, or slapped a body on them. Like, their creation involved the creation of their bodies. To be human is, is to have a bodily existence and that is our eternal hope. Now we're not just bodies, we're not just physical material, we have souls as well, we have more than just the physical and they're both real, they're both part of what it means to be human. But it's not like the spiritual part is more real than the, than the physical part. God honors both, and both are our hope for eternal life. Turn with me now uh, to Romans chapter 8. So if we want to talk about what the Christian hope is, Romans chapter 8 is a really terrific place to go. And we, we landed there last week, actually, so we'll, we'll just kind of pick up where we left off. But all throughout Romans up to this point, the Apostle Paul has been describing all that God did through Jesus Christ to defeat sin and defeat all of its byproducts, which includes death, and, and save us and rescue us from the power of sin and death. And in chapter 8, he kind of reaches a crescendo uh, and, and talks at length about the hope that we have if we're in Jesus Christ. And so last week, we looked at the very beginning of Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's kind of where we left off last week. But Paul goes on from there, and we'll touch down a couple places in in Romans 8. For now, I'd love to look at, uh, starting at verse 9. Paul says, You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. God will give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit living in us. The Christian hope is a bodily existence a bodily resurrection. That is the hope. You know, if the Spirit is at work transforming our lives, that's where it leads. That's the byproduct, is a bodily resurrection, the redemption of our bodies. We don't become angels. We become redeemed human beings. Now, how is that not just wishful thinking? How is that not just something to say to make us feel better? 
in the face of the pain and, and terror of death? Well, it's in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. We can believe this because God's already done it. This has a basis in reality. This has a basis in history. God raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the power that we're banking on, not just some vague wishy-washy hope for some day, but something that's actually been demonstrated in real time and in real history. It's not just wishful thinking. It has, it has evidence. It has a basis. God's proved it. He can raise us from the dead. Back to the earlier things we studied in the, in the Apostles' Creed, we, we affirmed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again. God has done this. Jesus experienced death and was raised to life. He experienced death. And all the key details in there, he, he was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to the dead. The death he experienced is like the death we all experience. His body and soul were separated. His body was buried and separated from his soul. And then God reunited the two at the resurrection. Body and soul came back together. Jesus didn't just escape the body and move on to some superior, higher form of spiritual existence. He was separated from his body in death, but God raised him up bodily. And it was pretty amazing. His body was, was mutilated at the crucifixion, but it was raised up glorious and immortal and new, newly made. God can do this. We don't just want to escape the body to some other form of existence. We'll be separated from our bodies at death, but God will raise us up to become not angels, but fully redeemed human beings. And you might ask, well, what about in the meantime then? You know, what happens... Uh, to people who are, you know, who pass away now, you know, in the meantime, before this resurrection takes place. Well, Scripture is not, doesn't go to quite as much length to describe this. The, the key hope is this resurrection, this ultimate resurrection that is taught much more clearly and at length in Scripture. But it does say a few things. Um, the, the Scripture that Andrea read for us described people as having fallen asleep in the Lord. And falling asleep is kind of a a sort of vague term, which kind of connotes the, the mystery of it. Like, maybe we don't totally know, but there's enough in Scripture that points to an existence for the believer that is with the Lord after they pass away. In Philippians, Paul describes how he would desire to depart and be with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, he describes being away from the body and at home with the Lord. Uh, Jesus, speaking to the thief on the cross, says, Today you will be with me in paradise. So I think there really is enough in Scripture to be able to meaningfully say if someone uh, passes away and they know Jesus Christ, that they're in some way with the Lord. Now, exactly what that looks like, not totally sure, but I think it's fair to bring comfort with those kind of words, that someone who fell asleep in Christ is, is with the Lord in some way, but they're still waiting to be reunited with their bodies. They're still waiting for this bodily resurrection that we're going to share in with them as well. As far as uh, non-believers, people who, who pass away and don't know Jesus, where are they now? Well, Scripture is even far less clear on that. So rather than uh, make something up, I'll just say, Scripture's not all that clear. Uh, so it's 
sobering again. But again, I want to focus on what we are clear about, which is that scripture from Old Testament through the end affirms resurrection and that the Christian hope, everyone is raised and the Christian hope is a bodily resurrection. So I want to talk about a few implications that this has for us as for Christian believers. I'll focus on the Christian hope for those who are in Jesus. I'll talk about the body first and then about resurrection. I think this has a lot of implications for our present view of the body. The Christian worldview affirms the dignity and the value and the importance of the human body. The time scripture was written, the prevailing Greek worldview was kind of a dualistic notion where spiritual was kind of better than physical and and the soul was better than the body. And there's a lot of worldviews now that treat the body as somewhat lesser, whether it's a new age or an Eastern kind of spirituality. The body is an illusion or it's something to escape. It's something that'll be discarded and thrown away and we can move on to better things. But scripture doesn't really talk that way. Scripture affirms the value and the dignity and the importance, the worth of the human body. And Christians ought to be at the forefront in our world for affirming the dignity and the value and the worth of the human body. My grandfather was a a master woodworker. He was just incredibly skilled. His whole basement he had turned into a sort of workshop and covered in sawdust on the floor. It smelled like cedar and pine. And he had giant table saws for making big furniture. He had lots of specialized little tools for making detailed and carvings. And he, he uh, made all kinds of things, from, from beautiful large pieces of furniture to, to small detailed wall hangings and, and figurines. Uh, he never sold any of it. He never made a dime, but he, he made things in order to give them to us, to his family. It was a rather large extended family, and he was just constantly producing things in his workshop and, and giving them to us, to those that he loved. He created just for the sheer joy of creating, for the sheer pleasure of creating beautiful things, and for the joy of sharing those things and giving them to those he loved. And now he's, he has passed away, and, and all of us who knew him have things that he made in our homes. Almost every room in, in our house has something that my grandfather made. And I, I really value those things. I really cherish those things. Um, I know they're just things. I know they're just made of wood and they won't last forever. But, I mean, what if I threw them out to the curb? Or what if I set them on fire? Or what if I, uh, you know, carelessly scratched and, and dented them? I would never do that. Because I, I love my grandfather. And I, I, those things that he made really mean a lot to me because he means a lot to me because I love him a lot. So I try to honor the things that he made and the things that were important to him. Well, God, our God, is a, a fantastic creator. We talked about his creative, uh, creative ability, the wonder of his creation several weeks ago. He's created all kinds of beautiful, amazing, wonderful things for the joy of creating and for the joy of sharing them with his children. And we ought to care for all of those things that he made because they have value to him because we love him. But perhaps the apex, the crown jewel of the things that he made, the things that he created, is the human body. The more you study it, the more it's just a fascinating and marvelous thing, the human body. I mean, God really put his best effort forward on that one. And God values and prizes the human body. And as people who love the human body, or who love God, I'm sorry, we ought to 
value and prize the human body and our love for him. This looks like a couple things. One is that we honor God with our bodies. That's a direct commandment that comes out of Scripture. Uh, honor God with your bodies. That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we won't turn there right now for the sake of time, but I'll just paraphrase. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul calls us to honor our bodies, and it's some of the most explicit teaching in all of Scripture about sexual morality and immorality and how we're to honor God with our bodies in terms of our sexuality. Uh, Paul says quite a bit about um, the Christian view on sexuality and what we're called to, the standard we're called to, the, the boundaries and the, and the calling that's on our lives as Christians. And he says, he says this right in the heart of it. He says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And this is what he says right after that. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. It's just fascinating that kind of right at the heart of the argument for honoring God with our bodies in, in, how, we, in how we live is this hope in the resurrection, that our bodies will be raised. The, call, the belief in resurrection of the body is a call to honor God with our bodies. And he goes on to say, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We're to honor God with our bodies. Now, all of us, no matter who we are, I'm sure, have dishonored God in how we've used our bodies in one way or another. And again, I want to refer you back to last week, the forgiveness of sins. You know, I just want to make sure you hear that as I say this and as I go on to say some more things. Uh, if they produce any sort of guilt or shame in you, it's God's pleasure to forgive our sins. But um, he has a high view of the body and a high calling to us to honor the body, to honor him with our bodies. And then secondly, not just to honor him with our bodies, but to honor the bodies of other people. Because again, God made them and God values and prizes them. The Christian is called to honor other people's bodies. And, and frankly, we live in a world where there's almost limitless ways in which people's bodies get dishonored and abused, taken advantage of, and, and the like. We're called to honor the bodies of other people. Think of several examples of what that could look like. I think of pornography, for one, which kind of is a, a double whammy. In a way, the use of pornography is a misuse of our own bodies that kind of dishonors God. But if you think about it, the whole industry of porn is built on the exploitation of other people's bodies. And so as Christians, I would say that's an industry we ought to boycott as much as we can. I think about the treatment of the unborn. Why is it that Christians are you know, constantly talking about the value of the unborn? Well, for one thing, they have bodies. You know, regardless of whether an unborn child can think or reason or feel or whatever, they have a body. And as such, they have value and worth in the sight of God. Not trying to make a political statement with that, but just to say uh, the unborn have a value because they're bodily creatures that God has made. Uh, there's all kinds of ways Christians can proactively care for and value and honor the, the human bodies. I'm so glad that many of the generosity projects that we engage in as a church have to do with caring for people's physical needs, whether it's feeding the homeless or providing hygiene packs for, for kids who, who don't have the resources or providing blankets and sheets so that kids can, can sleep well at night. I'm so glad that a lot of our generosity as a church goes towards honoring the human body of other people, especially the most vulnerable and the people who perhaps can't provide for themselves. 
that has a tremendous amount of value in God's sight. I'm glad that we do it. I'm glad that the mission trips that many of us are going on this summer have in some component of caring for others' physical needs. They're proclaiming the gospel, yes, but also caring for people's physical needs. The two go hand in hand, really, for the Christian. And finally, I want to say a word, because I, I know we have a lot of people here who are in the medical profession in, in one way or another, and you have spent thousands upon thousands of hours studying the human body. You have worked yourselves very hard studying the human body. Now, if the New Agers are right and, and these other worldviews are right that dismiss and downplay the value of the body and, and elevate the soul, then really, your work doesn't have that much value. I mean, why bother? Why, why all this hard work around the human body? And if Christians who've adopted some of these philosophies are right, that the soul is, is pri- of you know, primary, primary importance, then what are you doing? Shouldn't you be in full-time ministry like me? cares about the body, get busy saving souls. Now, proclamation of the gospel evangelism are very important. I don't want to say it's not, but I do want to say that your work, because of the value that God places on the human body, is every bit as important as mine. It's every bit as important as mine. Your work has value and dignity in the sight of God. And as a matter of fact, early Christians who really got this resurrection of the body invented hospitals, Hospitals are a Christian invention. It's a historical fact. Whether some of your colleagues know it or not, you're carrying on the legacy of Christians, believers in Jesus, who valued the human body because they understood how valuable it is in God's sight. At the same time, though, now we honor God with our bodies. We honor other people's bodies. The body is, is amazing. But as amazing as the human body is, It is subject to decay and death. Not to be morbid, but it is. And so it's important that we don't just care for the body in the present. That's not our only calling. Our call is also to a future hope for resurrection. Medical science is great, it's important, but it cannot resurrect. You guys study, you can study the body all you want. You won't find anything that can bring about resurrection. Only God can do that. To live forever requires a power beyond our own. It requires a power far beyond what any human effort and expertise can achieve. I watch a lot of sports, and, and often there's these commercials that come on for a product called Ageless Mail. I don't know if any of you have seen this. Um, apologies if you use this, but... Uh, It's a really interesting product, ageless male, and and they show these guys who are in their 70s, and they're just like ripped, you know, these great abs and and pecs, and they they hold on to their wife, and they talk about their incredible libido and how strong it is, and they feel like they're 20 years old again. Um, It's got a little bit of a caricature, I think, and and it's interesting, and there's nothing wrong with being a little bit in better shape than the average person your age. I aspire to that myself, but to defy aging is, is kind of an uphill battle. And to pretend that it doesn't apply to you is foolishness. There is no such thing as an ageless male. There's no such thing as an ageless female either. There's no such thing as an ageless human being. If you're a human being, you have an age. 
You do. And we have lots of different ages represented here in our church. I love that about us. You know, but no matter what your age is, there's a couple of things that are true about it. One, it's higher than it used to be. <laughs> it's only moving in one direction. And you are closer to dying than you were yesterday. <laughs> Again, I don't mean to be morbid, but it's true. And it's worth reflecting on this. We don't like to think about it, but I mean, come on. It's true. Even our best athletes in this country and their peak physical condition are subject to decay. All human bodies are. And we cannot resurrect ourselves. Something's got to happen. Some power has got to make us something that we are not now if we're to live forever. Where is that power found? Well, it's found in Jesus. Turn with me, if you, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a very long chapter all to do with the resurrection. It'll answer lots of questions about the resurrection. I want to skip down, though, towards the end in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50, where Paul says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. These bodies we have now, they're not able to inherit eternal life, but God can make a body for us that can. He will clothe our mortal with immortality. He will clothe our perishable with imperishable. And only in him is the power to do that. Only in him has the power to do that ever been demonstrated. It's been done. He did it to Jesus. He will do it to us. What exactly that looks like, it's hard to put our minds around. I mean, I imagine the body I have now living forever. I mean, gosh, that's quite a leap. But God can do it. God can do it, and God will do it. He's demonstrated that he can. It'll have to be profoundly different from the body I have now in some ways, and yet at the same time, it won't cease to be me. We won't become an angel. We won't meld into some spiritual oneness or anything like that. You'll still be you, and you'll have a body, but it'll be remarkably transformed into the kind of body that is not subject to death, that is not under the power to sin. It's not subject to decay. And we can say that it's not just wishful thinking, not just to make us feel better and, and lessen the blow of death. I mean, death is really bad, but it's been defeated in Jesus, and we can hope in that. I'd like to land by going back to Romans 8, where we were earlier. Again, back to the, the Christian hope, and, and what is it? What is our hope? What should we be hoping for? What should we be proclaiming is our hope? I'd like to pick up in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. All creation is groaning. It's crying out. It's frustrated. It knows we weren't made for death. We weren't made to decay. Death is a terrible enemy, but it's been overcome in Jesus. And we need to know that there is hope. Our bodies won't be subject to death because our bodies will be made new. And we'll be living in a renewed creation. The whole of creation will be new so that all of the forces around us that contribute to death and decay will be no more either. All the things around us and in us that cause death will be gone forever. And Paul exhorts us to wait for that to happen, to wait patiently and to wait eagerly. We've got to wait patiently. Only God can do this. We cannot resurrect ourselves or completely make things new by our own strength, our own power. Only God can do it. And it'll happen when he decides that it'll happen. We don't have to make things up in the meantime, but we can wait patiently and trust that God will do what he said he will do. And we also are called to wait eagerly. To wait eagerly for this to happen for new bodies and a new creation, to wait eagerly for that. We can be eager for it because it's coming. It's coming. And when you're eager for something, you talk about it. You tell people about it. This is coming. This is happening. I can't wait. Wait eagerly. And when people ask you, what's your hope as a Christian? Don't just say, oh, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. You know, the average non-believer has no idea what you mean by that. And increasingly, Christians have no idea what we mean by that, to go to heaven when we die. But let's think about it, and let's fill it out. Are you eager for a body that's made new? Are you eager for a creation that's made new? Are you eager for a body that doesn't break down, that doesn't lose function, that doesn't get weaker over time, and that doesn't die? Are you eager for a body without aches and pains and without allergic reactions, without passions and desires for things that destroy you? Are you eager for a body that's not subject to dementia or back pain, that's not, uh, that where bones don't break and joints don't give out and arteries don't clog and hearts don't fail and brains don't lose function? Are you eager for a body like that? I mean, come on! Are you eager to live in a world where the things that destroy the body aren't there anymore? Are you eager to live in a world without pollution, without harmful UV, UV rays, without, without cancer, without tumors? Are you eager for a world like that? Are you eager for a world without war, without violence, without killing of any kind, without school shootings, without drunk driving accidents, and without disasters and earthquakes and floods, and without drownings and death and decay? Are you eager for a world like that? 
Well, you should be. It's coming. And it's ours in Christ Jesus. He's proven it. And he's bringing it about. That's the promised land that we're bound for. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And if you believe it, say it with me. I believe in the resurrection of the body. One more time like you really mean it. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Thank you, Father, for this great hope that's ours in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for giving us pause to stop and think about our mortality. And we don't always like to do that, but man, we can do it before you. There's tremendous hope, God. Our whole world and each of us is longing for an existence that's not bound by all the sin and death and decay that we're bound to right now. We long to be set free. We long to be liberated. And so do those around us. Lord, teach us. Give us words to proclaim the Christian hope in a way that's not vague and it's not lame and it's not superficial, but, but that arouses hope in you. Thank you that you've demonstrated your resurrection power by raising Jesus from the dead. It's not just a pipe dream, Lord. It's something you can do, you will do, and you have done. At the same time, Father, resurrection is a sobering reality that you will call all of us back, call all of us to account. And so, Father, if there's anyone here who is not at peace with you, who has not come to you and put their trust in you and have their sins forgiven, I pray, Lord, you'd speak to them, you'd reveal yourself to them, that you'd call them into the glory that could be theirs in the new heavens and the new earth. For the rest of us, Father, help us not sell ourselves short in what we're hoping for. To wait patiently for it, to wait eagerly in a way that points others to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.